0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Literary Studies on the New Books Network. I'm Annette Joseph-Gabrielle, the co-host of the channel. Today, I will be talking with Regine Jean-Charles about her book, Conflict Bodies, the Politics of Rape Representation in the Francophone Imaginary. Regine is an Associate Professor of Romance Languages and Literatures and African and African Diaspora Studies at Boston College, where she teaches classes on Francophone literature, Black feminisms, African Film and Haitian Studies. Thank you, Regine, for joining me today to talk about your wonderful book. Thank you so much
1: for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you.
0: So I'm wondering whether um, we could begin just by you telling us a little bit about how you came to this Mm -hmm. project.
1: Sure. So when I was in graduate school, uh, when I was doing my PhD at Harvard, I was working on, I knew that I, I went into graduate school actually knowing that I wanted to work on Francophone women writers and that I was very committed to having a, um, a, a perspective that was both Caribbean and African. So a lot of times what you see in Francophonie is people do, I specialize in either the African continent or, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa or North Africa or the Caribbean. And I really knew I wanted to do both. And. I became I took a class on the public intellectual in France with um, Susan Suleiman, and I became really fascinated by this question of engagement and what it means in the Francophone context, especially for women writers. So, you know, engagement being um, committed literature, right? So this question of the politics of literature or literature with a political aim or a social role. And a lot of scholars had already written about this in the context of the Francophone world, but not really from a gendered perspective. So this is what I thought I was going to write my dissertation on, but I still felt there was something kind of missing in that. And then in my um, personal life, I started doing a lot of work with um, an organization now known as a long walk home, who's uh, at the time, their mission was to end violence against women and girls. And now we say our mission is to um, mobilize, empower and inspire young people to end violence um, against women and girls. But uh, so I started doing this work really because I was acting and my friend, who is a co-founder of the organization, asked me to audition for this performance. And the performance was actually her personal story of going from rape victim to rape survivor. And um, it was a performance that we were, were what I was participating in what would be the second performance of it. And so as I became involved with that, I just started to, to really think more um, about sexual violence in various contexts. And I felt that I really needed to equip myself because a lot of people began to disclose to me as I told them that I was performing in this show. And, you know, I had always been a feminist. I had always thought about, um, you know, rape culture, um, violence against women. I did not realize how many people I knew were survivors because they had not yet disclosed to me. And so as, as this was happening, so I'm writing my dissertation I'm, you know, acting in this show and all these people are disclosing to me. And so I said, I think to myself, well, I really want to be better equipped to deal with this. So I started volunteering at the Boston area rape crisis center And it was at that point that I realized that, you know, I could actually look at engagement, look at violence against women, um, as a way to, uh, as an expression, right. The representation of of violence against women as an expression of these authors engagement, because what kept happening in these novels that I was reading is there were scenes of sexual violence. So when I wrote the dissertation, it was actually, um, the original dissertation was called, um, gendering violence. And I really put emphasis on the viol, but it was really about gender-based violence in general. So it was not exclusively sexual violence. And then when I, you know, I, so I wrote that dissertation and then I went on to do a postdoc. and as I was doing my um, post-doc, I realized that what I really wanted to do is just narrowly focus the project on only, only on representations of sexual violence. And I, again, I had been continuing the work that I started as a performer. I then became a board member and I was a lecturer. And so I became very involved in the movement to end rape. And so it just was almost like a natural intersection for me that this area that I was really committed to in my activist life became something that I had to address also in my intellectual life. So when I, when I went from, when I narrowed the project from gender-based violence in general to specifically sexual violence, it actually felt very liberating for me um, because I was like, oh, you know, this is, this like makes so much sense because this is something that I'm passionate about and that I really feel called to, um, you know, speak out about and advocate against. So I was glad to have discovered that. So that's the kind of, uh, I don't know, it's a little bit of a winding path (laughs) from, how I got there, but it was really, you know, inspired by this work. I always tell my students, you know, it was inspired by this work that I was doing outside of the classroom. And I began to think more critically about how I could marry the two. Um, and I was really able to do that when I went from the dissertation to the book.
0: That's that's really fascinating, especially to think about sort of this one of these origin moments of, of this project being in this um, coming out from your your performance or your participation in this show, Because you think about different kinds of media in the text, right? You look at um, you look at literature, you look at film, you look at photography, and I guess I'm and and these are all media that sort of target audiences in different ways. And so I'm just kind of wondering, in writing this book, who did you imagine as your audience, and how did you want the book to speak to them?
1: So I always say that I wrote the book with survivors of sexual violence in mind. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I am not a survivor of sexual violence. I think, you know, we've all survived different things, right. I've definitely been, you know, as, as we're in this current moment thinking about me too, I'm definitely a survivor of sexual harassment or what have you, but I'm not a survivor of rape and I really wanted rape survivors to read my book and know that I was empathetic. And to kind of see themselves in that, right, and to feel that those stories and experiences were were being told or or at least understood by someone who had not gone through the experience, but who had walked through that experience with many different people. And um, so that was one. So that's kind of a general, you know, I wanted the the rape survivors, any rape survivor who picks us up, whether that person's a student or, you know, an academic, because we know given the statistics that person could be anyone right um mm-hmm. even you know in the in the conclusion most of the most of the book i don't uh, talk a lot about representations of sexual violence that um have male survivors but in the in the last in the epilogue i do and so you know whether they're male or female old or young they're really all different kinds of experiences here but so that was first but then also obviously you know it's for an academic audience right i think that part of what i was um, concerned about was what I saw as an absence of thoughtful engagement with sexual violence as more than just a symbol that had been um, it, that and, and that had been taking place in both the the field, the literature, right? These representations of sexual violence. Like for example when they talk about um, even Aminata Traoré, right, who is someone that I really admire she has this book called Le Viol de l'Imaginaire, right? So this idea of the rape of the African continent or the rape, you know, rape only as a metaphor. And so that had, that had been something that I had observed in the literature and in the criticism. And I really wanted to address that and present a set of texts that were not doing that um, and show how to thoughtfully analyze those texts as well. So academic audience, people who write about violence, people who had maybe, you know, written um, about sexual violence, be it critically, or in their fiction, but perhaps in a, in a way that's really bypassed it, you know, obviously students and
0: scholars as well. Right. Well, in, in your response, you've touched on, I guess, the, the first really striking element of the book, right, which is your use of the word rape um, as an analytical term, rather than sort of any number of euphemisms. Um, and I'm wondering how, how you made that decision and what was the value of naming rape for your larger project?
1: That's good. Yeah. I think that unfortunately that people are, you know, the, uh, there's an article, they never call it rape, right. Which is a, um, mm-hmm. now I'm trying to remember where, 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 that is. I'm like, that's not in the book. It's actually an article that i published. Um, but this idea that it's a book. So the, the other thing that's important is, okay, I'm, I'm uniting these fields, right? So there is an area called rape cultural criticism, right? So that idea of rape representation comes from a field, which is a cultural studies field, Um, in which critics really, and theorists, they really try to theorize and examine rape, right? Sexual violence in and of, as it it stands for itself, right? And so that was, I made, part of my intervention was uniting these fields, right? So saying this there's this field of rape cultural criticism and Francophone studies would really benefit from thinking about this because there, there are these scenes of rape that are everywhere, you know, in this canon of literature. So... It was really that specific field of rape cultural criticism that enabled me to um, take that step, right? And say, well, you know, this isn't just regime, the activist who's saying it's important to name rape and it's important to stand for survivors because people who experience rape, there are no euphemisms for their experience, right? Like they've lived that experience, you know? And so again, me, also the black feminist who's thinking about experiential knowledge, I I felt that it was important to go back to that experience of the body. Right. And then to say, well, if we're going to write about this or represent this or theorize this in a responsible way, then we have to name it. Right. We have to say what it is. And that's also, I see that as a way of standing with survivors who've experienced it, who have no choice, but to live that experience every day.
0: So in kind of thinking about, about naming rape and, you know, sort of not having to circum, trying to circumvent, um, use language that circumvents that actual real um, and and extremely difficult reality. I, I was I was sort of wondering if you could talk a little bit about your title "Conflict Bodies" because you emphasize a lot the body as well, um, and the title "Conflict Bodies" is really compelling because you talk about women's bodies in conflict zones, um, but also more quotidian forms of sexual violence outside of conflict zones. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what that title "Conflict Bodies" does in this work?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, one of the things that I really wanted to do was shift the attention um, from the context of the co- context of the conflict to uh, the body in the mm-hmm. conflict, right? And so, again, people will say, "Okay, well, after the earthquake in Haiti." because of the instability, because, um, women and girls are more vulnerable in situations of disaster. There's all this rape happening, right? And so when we think about that context, we're, we're talking about, that was one of the the dominant narratives actually that emerged after the earthquake, which actually some people did studies on, and we found that the incidence was not as high, um, as it was initially, um, being, uh, presented as being. And, um, so, people get so focused on the idea of a conflict zone, right? And in in the context of where this is happening. Uh, but what I want to do is kind of shift that idea from conflict. And it's interesting because part of what I'm doing is this kind of like, it's a rhetorical gesture, right? That is, that is um, purposefully invoking the same paradigm that I'm critiquing, right? So whereas I say, you know, I say, you know, we need to not have these metaphors, um, for rape. We need to not um, just think about, we need to not say the rape of the African continent or the rape of our people um, in a metaphoric way. We need to think about what is happening to these actual survivors. And so that's why I say instead of the zone, like, let's think about the bodies. Right. Um, but by saying that that is actually a site of conflict, part of what I'm saying is, well, there is conflict happening there for these bodies. Right bringing it back to those bodies was really important for me again, you know, and that's part of the feminist theoretical approach that I use, um, where I wanted to, to, to to think about that body, to think about those traumatized bodies and not just gloss over them. As I feel that sometimes when people say, you know, conflict zones to me, conflict zone sometimes is a way of, it's just, it seems so, so like, devoid of nuance, mm-hmm. you know, it just seems so like such a general term, like, and you could just any of these places, the places, and that's why it was also important to me to put Gled right. in there, right? Because Gled is not thought of as a conflict zone by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and so I'm, again, kind of shifting, trying to get people to think about, well, what are we really talking about when we talk about conflict and when we talk about bodies and we talk about places where violence exists? Because if the, if, if one in five women is being raped in the United States, if that's the incidence of rape here, and some of these so-called conflict zones, we have, you know, similar numbers. Then why, who who gets to be called a conflict zone and why, right? Um, by the way, They Never Call It Rape was actually the, my first published article ever. Okay. <laughs> it was in the gym. I was like, wait, I know I use that title somewhere for something I can't remember. Um, and I had to look, I did a search and I found it on my TV. <laughs> and it's, it's the first article I ever published. It was in the Journal of Haitian Studies in 2006. And it's called, They Never Call It Rape, Critical Reception, Representation of Sexual Violence in Marie Chauvet's Colleague. Okay. And, um, and that title comes from a book by, uh, so the, the, the phrase, They Never Call It Rape, is one of the first um, mm-hmm. books in the context of the U.S. that um, was very forthright about naming the experience of sexual violence.
0: Right. Well, one of the sort of, I guess, recurring things that I'm hearing in your responses, and that also comes out as a sort of contention in the book, is this idea of making this shift away from rape as metaphor. Um, and, And there are several aspects of your work that I found so very productive in thinking through the really difficult subject right, that you tackle with such care and grace. But in particular, you gave an extensive overview of the literary history of rape representation, right? In Francophone, Caribbean, and African literature. And you talk about how Francophone women's writings enact this shift in the literary landscape, right? From deploying rape as sort of this metaphor, this symbol of universal violence um, against sort of, you know, formerly enslaved or colonized people to really engaging with the power relations of gender and sexuality that are going to be inherent, right? In the kind of violence that rape enacts. Um, And so can you talk a little bit more about how, This sort of approach of paying attention to women's writings allows us to rethink violence and power in the Francophone world or in Francophone literature.
1: One of my favorite quotations from the book, or that is by one of these Francophone authors, is uh, Tanela Boni, who has this quote about violence familières. And she says, you know, familiar violence. She says, let's call it familiar violence um, because... um, it has been happening for decades and it has been happening for decades in literature. And it's been, and it's, it's historic, it's social, it's economic and our collective memory is full of it. And I love that idea of this violence that is so familiar. Um, yet somehow it takes, uh, before people really, really represent it, it takes a while for that to happen. And so one thing I will say is the, uh, as I was saying earlier, so, you know, I first started with, um, a project that was only focused on women writers. But then when I decided to really focus on the rape trope, I opened it. So, you know, as you'll know, as you know, Kofi kwaule, for example, who wrote Les Recluses is not, um, is a, a, a writer from, from Côte d'Ivoire. And so I also, I I asked myself, okay, well, what was more important? So I saw this long trajectory. I also saw (laughs) that marie Chantal Calissa actually wrote a book about representations of violence in the works of women writers exclusively, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, this is the task of a junior professor. You know, you have to distinguish (laughs) your book from something else. And it's funny because her book came out when I was in the process of revising my dissertation for book publication. And I, at first I thought, oh my
0: gosh, this is terrible. This is the book I wanted to write,
1: (laughs) you know, and then I read it and I said, you know, and one of my mentors said to me, well, how can you use the fact that this book has come out to sharpen your work, right? Or to, you know, how to, to kind of bring your intervention in another direction. And so I really pushed myself to think about this not as not only something that women writers did, um, but that we saw, these these thoughtful representations of rape could be produced in all different kinds of contexts by different kinds of authors, and so I begin, yes, as you say, with the you know showing how <laughs> the women writers are really the ones who made this kind of intervention, right? So you think about someone like you know Ken Bugu writing about Babfu, right? Even Marie Bâ right? In Une si Longue lettre um, when she's writing about the ways that you know women's gendered experiences, you know, I think that that's those are some of the texts that kind of set the stage. For um, these authors to begin writing about rape and begin writing about their experience with sexual viola- violence in a very personal way. Calix Biala has done this for years, right? I mean, I think in most of her books, there is some representation of sexual violence. And so really these authors be, and then, I mean, we could go on and on, right, as we think about this. Marie Skonde has representations of sexual violence in her. In her work, of course, though she writes in English, someone, someone like Edwidge Danticat takes that even a step further by showing us, um, you know, with the testing that she puts in Breath Eye's memory and mm-hmm. um, showing us that these kinds of gendered violence or sexual violence occurs not only, you know, in a male, uh, with, a, with a male perpetrator and a female victim. So I think that francophone women, right? I mean, this is like, you know. This is why, you know, we need women writers, right? <laughs> We're feminists also, because I think that, you know, uh, this is what always happens is that it kind of opens up, um, it opens up the landscape, right? For women to really think about this national narrative or to think about a dominant narrative and present a counter narrative. And often those counter narratives uh, are through the lens of women, right? Who are marginalized or through the lens of women whose voices have not been amplified, and I think that that's why, you know, we really see this in Francophonie, especially, and I actually think that engagement itself, that whole notion of engagement, becomes mm-hmm. this kind of heavy handed um, optic, right? It becomes this very heavy, not even optic, but like a heavy handed framework um, that is forced on the literature, whereby there's, 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 this is how you write political literature because you're writing anti-colonialism because you're writing against slavery because you're writing you know your're mongol biti and you're writing against the government but what we don't think mm-hmm. about and what, what these authors help us to see is this is also political literature right writing about mm-hmm. a woman who has been violated writing about you know the woman the man who's a gondidea who you know is is also abusing his wife right like this is this is also political literature these women, I mean they've said it many times right feminists have been saying it for years that the personal is political, but I think it really takes, um, it's really, you know, black feminists. I mean, and a lot of these authors, which I also did find fascinating, a lot of these authors like Baila, like Giselle Pinault, they say that they read those African-American authors, right? They say they're reading Mm -hmm. Alice Walker. They say they're reading Toni Morrison. Um, so it's really this diasporic, uh, black feminist, this global black feminist vision, you know, that is being, um, put on paper and creating a political intervention into the stories of, and and, and injecting this kind of a new political angle, I think,
0: Mm, I, I think it's really fascinating, this sort of opening up of the definition uh, of political literature. Um, but I think that you're expanding really multiple things in this text, right? So also, for example, the, the geography of Chancifuni, which is a term that you, you already take issue with um, in really productive ways. <laughs> um, but, but in thinking about sort of the geographies that you bring together that, as you rightly stated earlier on, um, are, are often read separately. Um, I'm interested particularly in two moments in the text. So one is at the very beginning where you start off with this scene of protest in the DRC where women are protesting rape. And this is really fascinating um, sort of sign about, you know, stopping sexual terrorism. Um, And then you end with a similar scene of protest where this time Haitian women are protesting and they're evoking similar language of citizenship and human rights. Um, but they're protesting the rape of a Haitian man by members of the UN peacekeeping force. And when you put these two moments together, there's just so much to unpack there, right? So one is sort of the geography and how you see these movements speaking to one another across the Atlantic. Um, so I guess it's sort of a two-pronged question, right? It's, it's first, how do you see these these different spaces speaking to one another? Um, but also in that particular moment where you discuss this rape of a Haitian man is how gender plays into this discussion. So we've talked a lot about gender and women, um, but how and how, you know, sexual violence is, is, is particularly gendered. But what is it that this this particular um, rape of this Haitian man suggests to you about how gender works in this kind of act of violence?
1: Great. This, that's a great question, Annette. I love this. Um, <laughs> like, yes, it's so nice to have people read your work thoughtfully. And yes, that purposefully kind of framed the book in that way with these protestings. Protest First, I just have to say about protests. And, you know, I'm a professor at Boston College, and we actually had a huge protest with thousands of students Yes. On on Friday, um, protesting these anti-racists, uh, protesting some of the some of the racism and anti-blackness um, mm-hmm. acts, you know that students have been defacing Black Lives Matter signs, blah blah blah, and um, and I am actually just personally fascinated by protests. Maybe this is another. Maybe this will be the fourth book coming along because <laughs> I would just love to to go through the archives and think about all these different protests that have taken place in the you know, Sua Diesel francophone world um, and compare some of these signs. I think because I think the sign, I mean, whether it's, you know, people have written about this, right, especially in performance studies about um, the body in protest, right, about how bodies move in protest and the signs in protest. And then so many of these protests, you know, they're singing and dancing. So anyway, protests themselves are fascinating to me. So that's one thing. Um, I also think about these um, anti anti-rape protests as being particularly important because of the way that, number one, You know, this isn't, protests are an act that are, it is a political act, right? So again, they're taking this act and they're speaking this very kind of intimate or private violence that has been silenced, right? So I think that that's always an important gesture when there are anti-rape protests that occur. Um, so that was my first thought about that. Um, but then, uh, in terms of the, the, you know, the language, um, that these women are using, I think what's important in both the case of DRC and Ayatollah is that both of these spaces, okay, so both of those contexts are being, are recognized in an international conversation about violence, right? So, mm-hmm. so, you know, the, 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 the war in the DRC, which has been going on for years, Um, but there has been this kind of, you know, attention to it from like, you know, a UN perspective and, you know, thinking about what kinds of interventions are, are, are being made on the ground versus what kinds of interventions are being made, um, by the government or by international actors. And then similarly with Haiti, it was really important to me that the, um, that the perpetrators were this, so called, I always call them soi peacekeeping, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, were these, were the minister, because what I found to be important with that one was how, <clears throat> excuse me, was how, um, Michel Martelly, who at the time was president, gave such a strong statement against sexual violence. And part of what I'm arguing is that although usually when people theorize rape, we aren't talking about, we aren't talking about, um, men who are victims, um, or boys who are victims. Um, but that in this case, he, to me deployed the language of the state, especially for two reasons. So number one, well, especially because it was the UN, right? So especially because it was a way to stand against Minusta and <clears throat> Minusta's presence in Haiti, right? So he, the boy is inconsequential. He kind of becomes a tool of this, right? Um, he becomes, he, 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 his, his subjecthood is actually erased because he becomes a tool for the government government to use this again for political aims. But then the question for me is also, again, as someone who aligns themselves with survivors, like what about him? You know, um, there's always the question of also, you know, the identity of the person how much the the so in some con- in some countries like in the united states you have to protect the identity of the survivor right you can't disclose you know the names of these people and so this w- is what becomes tricky with the camera footage also right is that you're you immediately identifying the person so there are all these ways in which um he becomes uh a symbol right for the violence that Monista has been enacting in haiti and then on a larger sp- perspective also this institutional violence, right? In this relationship between Haiti and the UN or Haiti and the US, right? He becomes a symbol of all of those things. Um, but then it's also, again, you know, the women who are the ones protesting, right? And, right. and you know, for all we know, some of these women might be survivors as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that to be just so important because I think, I mean, you know, women are amazing, right? And so I think that, again, we found this in movements across time. And this is what happened with Black Lives Matter, right? That it was women who were behind, um, it was women who were the ones who really marshaled the efforts and created that movement, right? Who came up with the phrase Black Lives Matter. Over and over, we see these women, um, often the mothers or the partners, right, with Elton Sterling, right? We see the, the, the mothers and the partners are the ones who are, who are also protesting, despite the fact that the violence that is being meted out against them is so often forgotten that they're still mobilized I don't think I answered your question, but I was just thinking. Out no, lot. you did. You did <laughs>
0: definitely. Um, and and I'm really interested, actually, in in this idea that you're. You're sort of honing in on on about women sort of leading the public protest, right, and and their own experiences sometimes being subsumed within this larger discourse where it's it's usually you have a male figure who becomes the um, the kind of emblem, right, um, of of this violence that's being enacted. Um, and 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 in in that context, I I would be remiss if I did not ask you this question because I have you here, given all of your expertise um, both in your scholarship and in your in your activism as well as a public intellectual. Um, I want to think a little bit about the recent public conversation around sexual violence um, involving kind of, you know, prominent public figures in the entertainment industry in the United States, um, as well as the equally public disclosures by victim survivors on social media, right? So you have the sort of hashtag MeToo that's been going around. How how does your book give us the tools to rethink the language that we use to talk about rape, particularly in this kind of public discourse?
1: That's good. That's a good question. So I think that the first thing that I say in my book is, again, we cannot just think about rape in terms of metaphors, right? As someone that does so much work on gender-based violence, and that is really for specificity, right, of naming sexual violence... I was a little, I did find myself, you know, I I did find myself in a little bit of a dilemma with the Me Too, right? Because mm-hmm. my question was, well, because it was victims of sexual harassment mm-hmm. and victims of sexual huh? violence, right? And I think that, you know, we do use in the field an umbrella term for gender-based violence, um, which encompasses all of those. But I did want, you know, I did want there to be a little bit, I, w- I was, I did want there to be a little bit more nuance within that, right? Um, because I think that, Uh, now, sexual harassment and sex, some of the women that have been speaking out against, um, Harvey Weinstein in in particular, they have been, you know, some people have been raped, right? Or they're saying, you know, they're, 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 oh, there's alleged, and I hate the word alleged, but, um, they're speaking their stories also with sexual violence in addition to their stories of sexual harassment, Mm -hmm. right? So as someone that just pays attention to language, right? So this was a place where, like, my activist self and my, like, you know, literary scholar, theorist self was like, eesh, oh, but wait, you know, these two are not exactly the same, but there is a larger term that has them under the umbrella. And so, um, for the sake of the movement, I did think that that was important. But then the other thing is I wonder, and this is what becomes, you know, difficult with social media in general, um, is that I wondered how I felt that the sheer volume would speak so much to people, right? But then for the at the same time, there are some people for whom I think the sheer volume um, would make them ignore it more, right? Like they just see me too, as opposed to I am all, stand with survivors. There are so many other hashtags that explicitly name, you know, survivors. And, you know, I love the fact that this was created by a black woman and it was created um, by Tarana Burke as uh, from a point, using empathy as a point of departure, mm-hmm. right? Um, because when she tells the story about how she came up with organization in the movement, she says that it was, she was talking to someone who had this experience and she said, me too, so that the person knew that they were not alone. And so this is the other thing about my book is that I, a lot of these authors that I write about and the, um, the photographers and the playwrights, what they're, the way that they, I mean, when you look at the way that Giselle, Elliot is basically saying in Macadam dreams, right? In Esperance Macadam, Elliot is basically saying to Angela, me too. Right? Mm-hmm. That's basically what she's mm-hmm. saying. Because here you have these two women, one who's 80, who was raped when she was, you know, eight years old. I forget exactly the ages, but let's say she, I think she's 80, and she was raped when she was eight years old. And then this other one who's a teenager who was raped, both of them by, you know, their fathers, right? And so, uh, it's that gesture. So what the novels literature has been telling us me too, for a long time, right. I think is what my book is saying. Mm. Um, and that again, this idea of the volume, which I think also mirrors, you know, the move, the volume, you know, people kept posting on social media. If everyone that's experienced this post, then maybe people will see how big of a problem it is. And I think when I go through that list in the first chapter and I say, here's a representation of her, here's a representation, here's a representation," That's part of what I'm saying too. Right. And then when I, when I, when I, um, analyze a scene like the scenes in L'Espérance Bacadam or even in Colère, right? Part of what I'm saying is the reason why these authors are, uh, their poetics is such that they take you through this scene of rape so slowly is because they want you to experience this kind of excess of the situation. Right. And so that excess of what the survivor experiences actually mirrors the excess of how rape is occurring. And, you know, my argument in the chapter about Haiti is that, um, I call it beyond, quote unquote, political rapes, right? Because I do think that part of what Marie Chauvet uh, and some of these other authors that I talk about are saying to us is sexual violence in Haiti is not only happening in the context of conflict, right? It's happening. It's not only happening because you got in power. It's not only happening because the or Minista or the American occupation, the Marine is raping someone, but it's also happening in these other times. And I think that that's what Me Too is also doing, right? It's telling us that this is happening all the time. Mm. And there are so many of these survivors. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my personal biases, I think art does it, you know, in a way that social media can't, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, I think that, that, but I am thankful. I'm very thankful. For the movement, I'm thankful for Toronto, Berkeley. I'm thankful that it's been brought out in the forefront. And I'm always, you know, seeing, speaking. You asked me also about survivors, right, and how people are, you know, about all these disclosures. I did. I was very interested in Lupita Nyong'o's op-ed because in the New York Times. Because I was wondering for a very long time, and I had I had texted some, you know, friends of mine who are both scholars and in the movement. And I was like, where are the black women? You know, what is happening mm-hmm. to race and all of this? Mm-hmm. And I always do have this fear that the face, the most prominent faces of um, sexual victimization are white faces, right, in this country. In the sense that, like, the survivors who are believed and who are heard are more often white women than they are black women. And that always is something that, and I think that that's another kind of intervention that my book is making. Um, I have another, an article that I wrote for RAL, for Research in African Literature, called Toward a Victim-Survivor Narrative. And in that, I argue that we really need to, when we talk about black women, that the survivor discourse is very helpful and important, and it's a useful intervention in the field, um, the anti-rape field in general, but that when we talk about black women, we also have to call them victim survivors, right? Because, so black women are so often seen as just resilient and they're not seen as victims, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so while we acknowledge that, yes, they are survivors as a way to empower, you know, as, as a, an empowering language, uh, we also need to acknowledge that they're victims. And so I think that that's something that I also have been watching with this Harvey Weinstein is just, I mean, it's just, you know, it's mostly white women, right. That are, that are, I mean the Hollywood, Hollywood, right. And so that's why, again, I said, I was really interested to see Lupita Nyong'o, um, in her, in her testimony about what happened to her with Harvey Weinstein. And then, I don't know if you saw this, I'm sure you saw this already, but she's the only one that he has said something like he has come out and made a statement saying that's not what happened with her. So only the black woman, Mm -hmm. right. Which again is like a reminder, right. That, uh, of why intersectionality is important, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because the only thing that makes her different from any of these women is that she's black and the other women. So, (sighs) so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a difficult, it's a difficult, you know, to kind of see these things happening over and over again, right? It's difficult in the sense that like, wow, black women aren't believed or wow, there's so many, this is such a prevalent problem. And yet, I am someone who really does believe that I really do actively imagine a world without sexual violence, Mm. Um, and I think that that's what also holds together a lot of the. Because people ask me questions like, "Why didn't you write about this book? Why didn't you write about this book?" And if you notice, what holds many of the texts together that I look at is they're kind of they have some measure of hopefulness, right, Um, in them that kind of point us to something else, a possibility for a future. And that's why I end, you know, with not only that example of um, Junior, but also the example of uh, Faïla. right? This poem um, written by Claudine Michel in the Meridians, that special, special issue of Meridians edited by Jean mm-hmm. Ulysse, which was after the earthquake. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that poem for me really is also about imagining the possibility of there not being survivors of sexual survivors, at least not one in five or one in, you know, or all these in their large number.
0: Right. Right. Well, your your, your earlier statement, literature has been telling us Me Too, I think is just such a powerful encapsulation of the connections that you make in your work. uh, of the black feminist framework that you use, and I think that your ending on this note of sort of an eye to the future um, and and a hopeful eye to the future um, is is really extremely important, particularly when we have sort of the like you said the sheer volume um, of of disclosures and, and narratives that that we're seeing and, and that we work through as well in in your text and in, in the literature that you that you you work on. Um, speaking of this sort of eye to the future, what are you working on now?
1: Yes. So right now I'm working on um, a project on feminist ethics mm. in contemporary Haitian literature. I, you know, I thought that my second book was going to be about diaspora and performance, um the Haitian diaspora and performance using performance studies to kind of think through the various meanings of diaspora. But I really, I wrote, you know, I wrote this article about Wycliffe and <laughs> it was in American Quarterly. And, um, and then I just kind of paused because I felt that the moment had passed for diaspora and I really felt like I wanted to continue to do, um, another feminist project. Mm-hmm. And so I just, you know, was reading. I also, pa- I also paused because in the book, in the original second book that I was going to write about diaspora, I had this, um, section on the literature, but it was by Haitian women who live in Haiti writing about diaspora, right? So contemporary mm-hmm. Haitian writers like Evelyn Triot, Kitty Mouse, Yannick Land, and how they write about diaspora. Because what, hap- what usually happens with diaspora is people f- interpret the Haitian diaspora as authors who are in diaspora mm-hmm. already, like Danny Laferriere and Edouard John which to me is another way of putting forth uh, or perpetuating the idea of diaspora exceptionalism when you don't look at how Haitian writers in Haiti are writing about the diaspora. Mm-hmm. So... I was working on that chapter during my sabbatical and I was like, oh, oh, there's so much here about, wow, the ethics, um, just various kinds of, again, the whether it's in relation to the land, you know, whether it's in relation to the environment, uh, in relation to aging, in relation to class, in relation to gender, uh, I feel that there is a, that we can, we can approach uh the this work through the lens of ethics and it's kind of and it's interesting to me to think of ethics after having done a book that started with politics right like how do you what is the relationship between those two so there are lots of questions that i'm asking myself about it but i've really been enjoying just reading you know these contemporary authors and reading all of it, it feels like you know when you're in graduate school, right? And you're, you're reading for your exams and you just read, I'm just going to read everything by this person. Yeah. So yeah, so I'm excited about that. Um, and I, 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 you realize, I think you really begin to understand kind of who you are as a scholar too, when you, when you continue writing, right? And I knew, you know, I, 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 I it's odd to say, but I missed writing a book about sexual violence, right? In the sense that I felt so attached to the, my first project and I felt such a purposeful sense of, you know, being called to write that book in that particular way uh, that I wanted to make sure that I kept that same energy with my second book, and which is why I moved um, to this topic, which I'm learning more about each day.
0: Well, it sounds like an exciting new project, and I'm very much looking forward to keeping up with your work. We've been discussing conflict bodies, the politics of rape representation in the Francophone imaginary. Regine, thank you for sharing your time and expertise and for talking with me today.
1: Thank you, Ahmed. It was a pleasure.